coming up on Philosophy Talk. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer. Not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. Have you ever been loved unconditionally? Shouldn't we be loved for what we are and what we do? Can mere human love really be unconditional? My dog gives me unconditional love. Everyone else, not so much. Is there really such a thing as unconditional love? Our guest is Lynn Underwood, editor of the Science of Compassionate Love. Unconditional Love, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm not, but I am John Perry. And we're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner down the street at Stanford, where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. And today we're going to philosophize about love, specifically about unconditional love. A rare and difficult thing, Ken. Really? Think about parental love. Don't you think that's unconditional? Well, parents profess to love their children unconditionally and sometimes do a pretty good job, but there are limits. And how often do children really test those limits? Well, think about romantic love. Don't you think that can be unconditional? Oh, couples in the first blush of new love may make dewy-eyed promises to love each other for better or for worse through thick and thin. But how often do such promises give way to betrayal, recrimination, divorce, alimony, and all that okay, stuff? Hey, John, you have a point there, but you got to admit that when unconditional love happens, it's an amazing thing, and it's a gift we all want. We all want someone who will love us forever through thick and thin, no matter what we do or who we become. Well, eternal love, I guess, would be nice, uh, but isn't that a little bit different from unconditional love? That's 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 love that whether it lasts forever or not, while it lasts, it has nothing to do with who you are. Well, unconditional love is the highest form of love. I mean, most re- religions recognize that too. That's why they attribute unconditional love for all mankind to God. It's why Christ commands Christians to love thy neighbor as thyself. Cool thing, John. Well, you know, you can take the boy out of Notre Dame, but you can't take the Notre Dame out of the boy. Uh, unconditional love would be easy for God if, if he existed. He would have infinite patience. He would have boundless capacity to forgive. You couldn't hurt such a God, not really. But humans aren't like that. We're vulnerable. In us, too much hurt, betrayal, or disappointment can kill even the deepest, most enduring and sincere love. Now, you're focusing on the work it takes for us to give or to sustain unconditional love. I admit that that's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. But think about, think more about what it's like to be the recipient of such love. Now, that's undeniably a good thing. Well, I'm not so sure it's all you're cracking it up to be. People want to be loved for who they are and, and what they do, don't they? I mean, if somebody loves me unconditionally, does that mean they don't really care about all I've accomplished and all I try to do and how lovable I am? No, no, no. Just because you love somebody unconditionally, that, that doesn't mean you don't care about who they are or what they do. You don't care about their particularity. That doesn't mean that at all. You want them to be their best self. You, you might even believe that your loving them will help them to become that. Loving unconditionally means, I think, you don't withdraw love when things go badly, when you're betrayed or hurt. 
Yeah, but if if bad behavior doesn't have consequences, doesn't that mean that the lovers just become a patsy? I mean, think of battered women who won't give up on their abusive partners. Is is that kind of your paradigm of unconditional no, love? No, that's not. That's self-destructive love. Love unconditional love doesn't have to be self-destructive and plus it doesn't necessarily involve a kind of passive acceptance and blind forgiveness like you're imagining. Unconditional love can be tough and demanding too. I mean, think of our children. When they do bad things, we punish them. We we give them stern messages, but we still love them. We punish them because we love them. Our, our punishment is actually an act of love. Okay, so your idea of unconditional love is kind of selfless love, the kind of love that never asks what's in it for the lover. I don't ask what's in it for me. I ask what's in it for the person I love. What I, what I need to do is to make the life of the beloved better, no matter what the cost to myself. Well, that's pretty much how I'm thinking of it. But, yeah, I would add something that may sound a little paradoxical. When you, act, when you love somebody unconditionally, it actually puts you in a unique position to actually hold them to high standards. Because then your, your complaints, your punishment, your criticisms, those themselves are acts of love. They're generous gifts. Yeah, it's a pretty picture, but I doubt that most human beings are capable of the kind of selflessness you have in mind. For most of us, the self will get in the way. I mean, even when we think we're acting out of selfless devotion to the other— if we dig down, we'll find some hidden selfish motives. I, mean, I, I think you're underestimating people, John. I think people, at least some people, actually have an amazing capacity for selfless love. Amazing. No, I'm being a realist, Ken. We tell ourselves that romantic love is selfless, but romantic love wants to be reciprocated. That makes it almost the opposite of selfless. Besides, nobody really deserves the kind of love you're talking about anyway. Nobody has a right to demand that you love them selflessly. That would be selfish. Well, you're right about that. But that's because unconditional love is a gift. It's not an entitlement. Christ commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but out of a sense of selfless generosity and, and charity. Well, that's a nice-sounding ideal, but frankly, I really doubt it applies to most people most of the time. I'll go back to parents I mean, and their love for their children. Think of all the things children put their parents through while the parental love still endures. Don't you think most parents, many parents, all parents, love their children unconditionally? Maybe, maybe not. But, but I do, I, I'll give you this. If we're going to find unconditional love anywhere, it will be in the love parents have for their children. That's why we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, out to talk to a man who has thought and written a lot about the challenges and demands of parental love. She files this report. Andrew Solomon wrote the book on unconditional love. Unconditional love, so far as I'm concerned, means that you love someone and there's nothing they can say or do that would actually destroy the love. It might be terribly upsetting, but you can't withdraw from the relationship entirely. Solomon is a writer. His book is called Far From the Tree. It's about children who are different. He interviews parents of children with autism, schizophrenia, or dwarfism. Solomon talked to hundreds of people over a decade. Take Clinton Brown, who was born with diastrophic dwarfism. When I was born, my mom didn't see me for three days. She was scared. The doctors gave her a paragraph in a medical dictionary that described what I was, from a medical standpoint, a paragraph. That was all they had. Said he would never amount to anything, his mental capacity would be little to none, and you should probably give him up and think about adoption. 
Instead, Brown's parents decided to raise him. He was physically deformed but smart. He ended up being the first in his family to attend college. Writer Andrew Solomon recalls talking to Brown's mother about the time she caught him drinking at a bar with his college buddies. She thought, okay, he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall. Two beers for them is four beers for him. He's going to drink and he's going to go out in the car and he's going to get, she said she was beside herself. She left him a bunch of messages on his cell phone. And then she thought, oh, if someone had told me when he was born that my fear would be that he'd go out drinking and driving with his college buddies, I would have been so happy to have that problem. Then there's the story of Deirdre Featherstone and her daughter, Catherine, who was born with Down syndrome. Here's Deirdre. The minute she was born and she was put on my stomach, I thought, fine, I'm okay. This is the nicest spirit I have ever met and we're gonna be fine. And then, you know, the, the diagnosis of Down syndrome came later and, you know, it's, you, you sort of get what you get and you go from there. Today, it's easy enough to find out during pregnancy whether a child has Down syndrome and some couples do end the pregnancy. Andrew Solomon describes himself as an abortion libertarian. He believes everyone should have unfettered access, but he says he worries that couples make this decision without fully understanding how lovely kids who are different can be. And Deirdre said something that sort of summed the whole thing up. She said, all my friends had these children they thought were perfect, and since then they've had to deal with their limitations and challenges. I have this child who everyone thought was a disaster, and all the surprises since then have been happy ones. I'm lucky to have had her in this particular period of I'm time. I'm lucky too. In... Thank you. I feel lucky too with my mom, and I'm so excited. Solomon also talked to the mothers of criminals, like Sue Klebold, whose son Dylan, along with Eric Harris, murdered 13 students at Columbine High School in 1999. Dylan and Eric then committed suicide. I said it must have been awfully hard to love him once you knew all of that, and she said no. She said it was hard to understand him, it was hard to forgive him, it was hard to deal with what my life became in the wake of it. She said, but loving him, that part was always easy for me. Solomon tells stories of women who conceived after being raped. In Rwanda, a whole generation of children were born out of extreme violence. They're called the children of bad memories. Solomon recalls one woman in particular. At the end of the interview, when I said, do you have any questions for me, expecting her to ask, will this be published in French, or how long are you staying here, or something like that, said to me, well, you're in this field of psychology, right? Can you tell me how to love my daughter more? Because I want to love her so much. But when I look at her, I think of what happened to me, and it gets in the way. And afterwards, I thought to myself that it was an incredibly loving question to be asking. Solomon started his own family with his husband, John, while he was writing his book. And he's learned that most parents are capable of loving any child, no matter how different. But if some glorious angel dropped through the ceiling and said, I can take them all away and give you other nicer, better, more attractive, funnier, smarter kids, I would cling to the children I have with their flaws because with their flaws, they are the people whom I love. If that's not unconditional love, then what is? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Good question, interesting report. Thanks, Caitlin. I'm John Perry. With me is fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And today we're talking about unconditional love. We're joined now by Lynn Underwood. She's a member of the graduate faculty at Cleveland State University. She's co-editor of The Science of Compassionate Love, Theory, Research, and Application. L Lynn, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Hi. 
So, so Lynn, uh, I want to ask about what got you interested in unconditional love. I mean, was the absence of it or in real life or the <laughs> presence of it, the surplus of it? What, what drew you into thinking about this? Uh, I think finding how messy life, listening to your intro earlier, uh, was very obvious. Uh, love is messy. And I think I was very aware that love is messy, that when it comes in and we have love, it's absolutely wonderful, but that it's sometimes a mixed bag. And when people love us, they're not always, uh, you know, freely loving us and they've got issues. And when I loved other people, I was always aware that there were things getting in the way of that love. So I think personally that drew me into it. But I entered into the whole idea of science of love uh, as an epidemiologist because I was really fascinated with measurement. I've been measuring things all my life, and I like measuring soft things in people <laughs> like social support and uh, stress and things that are really hard to measure. And uh, I started to de I developed a measure called the Daily Spiritual Experience Scale that was looking at the transcendent features of life, how people interact with the transcendent, and. One aspect of that, four of the 16 questions on that scale were about unconditional love, well, well, giving let, it to others. Let, yeah. let, let, let me ask you then about unconditional love and exactly what right. you mean by it. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds like it involves a great deal of blindness. Don't people want to be loved for who they are and what they are and how lovable they are instead of being loved blindly and unconditionally? Or what, what exactly is your definition of unconditional love? Well, it's a kind of a selfless caring for others, a, a love centered on the good of the other, um, sort of loving people through thick and thin, the sort of love that we were hearing about in that little excerpt that was uh, right before I came on, um, the whole idea of self-giving, other-centered love, uh, one that is designed to enable the other person to flourish in whatever way they can. So, and it's centered on the good of the other rather than on ourselves. What role does... Do I play in this? And does myself play? Do I am I supposed to just negate myself? Am I equal to the other in this unconditional love? I mean, a totally unself-regarding. Yeah. Well, when I developed this, it was uh, I was trying to uh, think about a balance system. So when I uh, did research to kind of look into this, I thought about the whole idea that we can't. We have to have a balanced attitude to love. We have to balance giving and receiving. We have to balance care for self and care for the other. The, the, you were mentioned earlier in the program the issue of a battered wife. And I think those sorts of situations somewhere, the person needs to value themselves and uh, put the safety mask on themselves so that they can help others. And I think we need to balance a kind of a care for self with with this kind of self-giving love for others. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking about unconditional love. Are people psychologically and emotionally capable of loving others selflessly and unconditionally? Or is the self bound to get in the way? Does unconditional love require more self-sacrifice and self-denial than most of us are capable of? Or is the capacity for selfless love more widespread than cynics imagine? Measuring our capacity for unconditional love, when Philosophy Talk continues. What does it take to love someone always and forever anyway, to love them unconditionally? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, 
And today we're talking about, we're questioning the capacity for unconditional love. Our guest today is Lynn Underwood from Cleveland State University. So, Lynn, I don't think you'd have to convince most people that a whole, whole lot of human behavior is driven by self-interest. And, and sometimes, you would, I don't think you'd have to convince most people that sometimes when we tell ourselves we're acting out of selfless motives, we're actually just deceiving ourselves. We're really acting out of selfish motives. So given all that, what, what convinces you that people actually have much of a capacity for selfless love to begin with? You've pointed out there's a real mixed bag always in love. There's a mixture of motives. And what we're really looking at is there is there what's driving the bus of love in a way? Is it centered on the good of the other or centered on ourselves? And I think we act in our lives in, in both of those directions. One, things that are centered on ourselves and things that are centered on other people. But I think there are a lot of biological uh, supports for the issue of uh, the whole aspect that we can give of self for the good of the other. Um, and there's also uh, scientific evidence that we have done it. I mean, one of the uh, issues, we look at people who rescued people in the Holocaust, and they sacrificed uh, their own well-being for others. And I think parents, as you were pointing out, uh, sacrifice for their offspring, and they give of themselves generously for those they care about. We, in our friendships and uh, in our relationships. We do this for everybody, for each other on a daily basis. Lynn, uh, of course, we're philosophers. We don't want to get bogged down in facts. You know, we just like to argue. <laughs> but you've done a lot of empirical work on this. So, so what, what's the most surprising thing you found about unconditional love in, in, in your testing and surveying and measuring? Well, there are a couple of things that I might uh, highlight. One was uh, a study that Ben Carney did on uh, married uh, newlyweds. He studied newlyweds at the beginning of their relationship and then looked at how it predicted longevity of the marriage. And the thing that was most predictive of longevity was everybody, of course, when they were newlyweds, or most of them anyway, were in love with the other person. But uh, some of them really were very aware of the of the failings of their spouse mm. <laughs> early on. And it was kind of the combination of this, you know, abiding generous love for the other person and thinking they were wonderful, combined with an awareness of their failings that predicted the longevity in those newlyweds, of their marriage for those newlyweds. So, but see, um, but Lynn, let me stop, just pause here. I just want to get clear yeah. about what, so, okay, I, it seems to me plausible. Lots of people have argued that parental love is a form of selfless love, but you might even wonder there because the child is connected to the parents in a certain way. So it's love for a person connected to yourself in a certain way. Romantic love between marriage partners, it's not. It, you might think of it as selfless, but there's a kind of recipro reciprocity there. And without the reciprocity, it's hard to see how a marriage could be sustained. So, I mean, are those really forms? I mean, would you really call either of those things selfless because, you know, in the one case we have a reciprocal relation and in the other case we have our own offspring. I mean, if we loved other people's children as much as we love our own, that might be selfless, but... Do you know what I mean? Right, I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, there have been studies of adoption. I mean, why do people adopt, which are not other children, and they adopt children um, from different groups, for example, and that uh, kind of brings out this notion that we can care for those that are different from ourselves or not our children. And I think, too, uh, there's cost in parenting, even though they're your own children. Um, there have been some brain imaging studies that look at kind of uh, mothers imagining 
uh, you know, looking at faces of their own babies. And of course, areas of their brain lights up and it's all positive typically. <laughs> but uh, there also have been studies that have looked at the mother imagining getting up in the middle of the night, being really tired, the baby crying. And there, in those situations, the two, er- two areas of the brain lit up. One, the more affiliative area, the, the kind of one that lit up when they looked at their baby's picture. But also then they had, there was kind of an immoral area of the brain, moral engagement, that lit up as well. So this sort of challenge of uh, anybody who's had maybe a teenage child, you know, you are, <laughs> you're stretching beyond the sort of natural affiliation that might happen <laughs> when you have a smiling baby. And uh, I think those kinds of things help us to help encourage us that this kind of other-centered love is possible. So uh, you you said you you talked about biology and talked about some sort of biological neurophysiological evidence. I know that some people in evolutionary biology have argued that uh, human beings are actually evolved for a, a certain degree of altruistic love. Anyway, I'm not sure you could call it self selfless, but a certain degree of altruistic love. Is that right? Yeah, I would think there's some there's evidence for that. A lot of this, the biology that looks at our we, we are designed to live in groups, and that whole uh, the affinity for other people is you know part of who we are. We have oxytocin, which is a positive hormone that kind of uh, increases when we're in a positive social situation. And I think those kinds of things that encourage the social affiliation with others uh, could be thought of as an evolutionary drive toward uh, altruistic behavior toward others, a kind of a cooperation in, in a situation in a group. So there seems to be a, a difference here, though, between uh, between what we might just call uh, abstracted or it, love, that is, you know, you have this, the general capacity to love another person and you don't really pay too much attention to what's in it for you. And then then the interesting finding you had about, uh, uh, that you mentioned uh, about newlyweds, that the more they're aware at the outset of the faults of the other, the more likely the thing will last. That that makes a lot of sense to me. My wife doesn't have any faults, and I knew that right away. And she she <laughs> she seemed to grasp mine very quickly. And now we've been married for fifty <laughs> years, so that fits <laughs> fits it. But but is there that difference? I mean, uh, the the kind of love that's unconditional because that. It's based on a realistic assessment, so your expectations are not uh, distorted and you love them anyway, versus the kind of love that's just based on not so much ignorance, but just uh, the other individual is a human being and therefore, and it's a certain relationship to you, therefore entitled to love no matter what they're like. Are those different things? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When when I was trying to kind of do a model around this and kind of think about what are the criteria that are important for unconditional love, um, one of those was some degree of cognitive understanding of the other person, of the situation, and of ourselves is really important. And uh, I think what you're honing in on there is that um, kind of awareness is important to really enable the other, if, if compassionate love or unconditional love is trying to help the other person flourish, we need to know something about the other person for that to be the case. And we know, need to know something about ourselves uh, in that circumstance. We're, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about unconditional love with Lynn Underwood from Cleveland State University. We have Carla from San Francisco on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Carla. Thank you. I have a question going back to an earlier segment. Um, 
Your guest said that you have to balance your care for yourself and your care for the other. But I was wondering, in the case of the, the battered woman, the battered wife, perhaps, if she unconditionally loves her partner, and it's in, and she has this other-centered love, and all she wants to do is make his life the best it can possibly be, irregardless of her own um, well-being, then it seems to me that there is no way to prevent that from becoming a, a sort of self-destructive life. And if, if, but if you're going to balance and if you're going to sort of take care of your own self, then it's no longer unconditional love because then it's love on the condition that it doesn't interfere with your own well-being. So, so it seems like in that case, unconditional love does have a limit and it, it, it is conditional that you're not worse off loving this person. Thanks for the call, Kyla. What do you think, uh, Lynn? Yeah, I think that's a. It really reminded me when you when you asked that question. It kind of reminded me of something else that wasn't unconditional about, let's say, you're a battered spouse and you're being battered. <laughs> um, if you really want the flourishing of the other person uh, in that situation, if you really in, want them to flourish as human being, as a human being, uh, to allow them to batter you is probably not in their best interests either. So even if we set aside this balance situation, it's probably not other-centered uh, to really enable the person to continue to do that. Uh, it's not going to help them to flourish. Now, Lynn, I mean, love and hate are, are not just the emotions we have towards other people, but at least in language we talk about self-love and hating oneself. Uh, how unconditional is or should one's love for oneself be? I mean, uh, less unconditional than one's love for uh, one's spouse and children, or more so, or what? I know. I think that's a really good question. I mean, I've been struggling with this when, you know, I talked about earlier getting this, the scale to measure things, and one of the things I couldn't come up with a, a question for was this whole idea of other-centered love for yourself, in a way. You're, you're looking at yourself, you want you to flourish, and uh, yet you have other people you're caring for. And how do, you, how do you kind of balance that? And I think that it's a different kind of thing than a me, me, me. You know, when you, you want to give yourself everything you want, just as you wouldn't give a child who you cared for uh, everything they wanted. Uh, you maybe wouldn't give yourself everything you want, but you would help to provide the things for yourself that would enable you to to flourish as a person and, and do well, um, kind of thinking of yourself as a, as a beloved friend, and then how would you care for yourself? I think that can be put into the mix, just as we balance our love for our, our close pe people we're close to and strangers, we're always doing this balance of love. We can't love everybody at the same time, uh, but love for ourselves is, is an important component, you know, component uh, of this. I want to comment on, briefly on both of these things. Back to Carla's question and your response. I think your response is right on. I just want to stress it. I think unconditional love is not, I, I said this in the opening, I really believe it. It's not just love that uh, passively accepts and blindly excuses. That's not what unconditional love is. Love is a thing. I mean, when you love somebody unconditionally, it's a gift to them that you offer to them for partly for their self-improvement and their their they're being better people in the world. And you, you never withdraw it. That's the unconditionality of it. But you don't just say, oh, whatever, whatever, right? I, th that, that's one thing. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this bears, that bears stressing that lo unconditional love empowers you to hold a person to their best self, not like as a scolder or a punisher, but as a lover. 
And the second thing, uh, uh, Kierkegaard said something about the relationship between self, because he says that uh, uh, Christ is really clever. When Christ says, love thy neighbor as thyself, it starts with the presumption of self-love, but then it turns self-love into this demand for universal love. It doesn't diminish the love of self, but it puts self-love in the context of your love for all mankind. That's, he says, what the as thyself comes to. And he thinks it's a really clever move on Christianity's part. Well, I mean, Kierkegaard and Christ are assuming that they're talking to someone who has a a, a healthy attitude towards himself. I mean, if you you hate yourself, it's not very helpful advice. That's true. He says Christianity presupposes self-love, but then turns it on its heels. What do you think about that, Lynn? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. When I did, I did a bunch of interviews uh, when I was doing those early interviews I was talking about, and one of them was with a bunch of uh, Cistercian Christian monks. And uh, I was asking them, well, what are the crucial aspects of this other-centered love? And one of them said, you know, to accept myself in order to accept others. And I thought that was really interesting. It was, uh, seemed to be really fundamental to him in terms of that. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about self-love with Lynn Underwood, and we'd love to have you join this conversation. Pat from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Pat. Uh, hi. Um, I was uh, listening to the program, and I was thinking, what happens when that uh, kind of love that you talk about uh, either gets rejected or gets uh, knocked? There's no reciprocation back. Well, thanks for the question, Pat. What do you think, Colin? Oh, I mean, I think one of the aspects about unconditional love is that we just can't expect anything back, <laughs> unfortunately. And uh, one of the challenges when we're loving is where do we fill up the tank? You know, I think we all need to fill up the tank somewhere. And if we're loving and it's not reciprocated, we're obviously not able to, to fill up the, the tank of unconditional love from, from that other person and need to find other other places for that to happen. You know, some philosophers, some people who think a lot about the sort of theories of love, they say that parental love is the purest form of love because, just because of this, uh, a parent's love, perhaps in the hope of being, re- first, the, the, the being that comes into the world that they begin to love isn't capable of reciprocating their love. <clears throat> and they love anyway. They may love in the hope of being reciprocated, but not in the expectation or requirement of it being reciprocated, uh, unlike romantic love often. So some people think that's the purest. Parental love is one of the purest forms of love. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think it, it is a very pure form of love. I think, too, though, sometimes even parental love can be, can be contaminated with needs and, you know, needs to be, you know, um, satisfied by the child, and that's when it goes adrift. I think parental love in its best form is that other-centered, self-giving love. But it, too, can, you know, go off the rails at times. So, so we've got an email from Fred in Fresno who says, uh, look, aren't you guys playing a little fast and loose with the term unconditional love? When we, mean, when we say unconditional love, don't we really mean love that's not responsive to the normal range of conditions. We don't really mean absolutely unconditional love, do we? What do you guys think of that? Well, I'll turn that one over to you, Lynn. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't used the word unconditional love Ah. a lot in my research. So the book was called Compassionate Love, right? And I did a lot of interviews to find out what's the best word to use. And unconditional love hasn't been used a lot out there, I think because we we resist this whole idea that 
there's never any love in human beings anyway that doesn't have some conditions on it mm -hmm. of some kind or another. We're all limited freedoms, and uh, we act in a limited way. So unconditional love doesn't completely grab it, but I think it does hit the spot for a lot of people. And therefore, you know, using something like altruistic love or compassionate love maybe isn't, doesn't hit the spot as well. And I, I, I kind of like the fact that you've used unconditional love on this program, even though I haven't done it in my research. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about unconditional love with Lynn Underwood from Cleveland State University. In our final segment, we're going to ask, if humans really do have an extensive capacity for selfless love, how come it's so rare? The war between self and selflessness, when Philosophy Talk continues. If we all deserve unconditional love, why is it so rare? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Lynn Underwood, co-editor of The Science of Compassionate Love. And we've got a lineup of callers. Sarah from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Sarah. Hello. Hi. What's your comment or question? Um, well, I, maybe you've gotten around to this. I think the conversation is moving, but unconditional to me uh, that's an English word, and it means without conditions, and it includes the idea of accepting hostility, attack, all that kind of thing. It is not ideal. I think what you're talking about is closer to an ideal sort of love. Ideal versus unconditional. I'm not sure I'm following you. What, what okay. distinction are you making there? Say it again. Unconditional means you put no conditions on it. You will love that person <coughs> if they attack you, if right. they kill you. You right. will love that person making no conditions. Right. That, to me, is what unconditional means. It's not really a good thing. I think you're talking about ideal love. Okay, Sarah, you're, so you're... Okay, thanks. I mean, I, I think we are intending to talk about unconditional love, but you're claiming unconditional love is not a good thing. Uh, what do you think about that, Lynn? Is unconditional love a good thing or a deeply problematic thing? Well, I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, it, it tends to, in general, I mean, like studies have shown, you know, in uh, studies like World Health Organization looked at giving unconditional love, receiving it, uh, helps people's quality of life. It's generally a good thing. I think the kind of problems that you're pointing out, Sarah, happen when you're really not giving of self for the good of the other, but you're you're uh, kind of maybe facilitating something that isn't really for the, the good of someone else. And I don't tend to use, again, unconditional love, but I think other-centered love is, is something that gives, it strengthens us as people. It helps us to feel kind of what we're flourishing as we do, as we give this kind of love. Right. Look, look I, I, I think Sarah's, maybe she said, maybe you're getting around to it, because I think the thing that her point misses is that love, any kind of love, I think, isn't just directed to what the other wants. It's, well, it's directed to, uh, as Aristotle would say, to the other's good. If my kid wants nothing but candy, it's not love to give him all the candy he wants, right? If my abusive spouse wants to keep beating me, it's not love to let him keep beating me or her keep beating me. That's not love. That's acquiescence. That's self-denial. Love is, dir is directed to the other's good, I think, if it's genuine love. That's, that's something that really comes up when you have teenagers, because if, if you're kind of uh, 
if your love is conditional in the sense that the way you're treating them is really based on getting them to be nice to you, it doesn't work as well as if you are willing to engage in a little more tough love, which means that the effect of your loving act on them is probably going to be resentment, at least for the short term. What do you think about that, Lynn? Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, that because that, that is really an example of you're doing something that costs you something. <laughs> it costs you the positive feedback by doing that for the for the teenage teenager, you're you're getting some flack. You're doing something that that costs you emotionally. You don't want to do that. You you love your kid. You like to get positive strokes back. Right. And I think that's a, a really good example of of other centered love in operation. And I and I, and I also now I want to so you you reluctant to talk about use the word unconditional, at least in your research. But don't you think that that let's go back to religions. Christianity, don't you think that what Christ is commanding us to do when he says, love thy neighbor as thyself, is really to love thy neighbor? Because you're supposed to love even your enemy, right? Uh, is yeah. to love yeah. humanity in all its manifestations? Yeah. I mean, and always only yeah. to be driven by your love of humanity? Yeah. And in that way, I think as I explored it, thinking about it in the context of this program, when I thought about unconditional love, I think it works from that point of view. When you think about it in that context, unconditional love does work. Um, It's still, you have to kind of keep in mind that it's love, the love centered on the good of the other that you're supporting. But I think it works in that context. I mean, one of the things that's different between what religions command us to or suggest that we do or enjoin us to do and sort of the intimate kind of love. We've been mostly talking about intimate forms of love. You can't have an intimate relationship with all of humanity. I mean, in some metaphorical sense, you might, but, you know, but not really. And that's that makes it a lot different. It's interesting that uh, there was a one of the studies that happened earlier was by Pearl Oliner, who looked at rescuers in the Holocaust. And one of the things that predicted people rescuing was a sense of common humanity. They had a sense that I and the other have a fundamental relationship that's really important. And they were willing to step out of, let's say, this was Catholics and Protestants who helped Jews in the Holocaust. They were willing to step out of their comfort zone because they felt uh, something deeply in common with, with other people. Dorothy from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Dorothy. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, you've just touched on some um, one of the points that I was making, because um, you have been talking more on pers- you know, more of a personal love, uh, romantic love and so forth. And um, there's the, also what the Buddhists call metta, or uh, maitri, which is the desire for the happiness and well-being of of the other, or in actually all beings, without the expectation of return. The reward is that one finds happiness in the happiness of others, uh, and it's actually more of a um, it's more of a mode of action. It's a way of being in the world. Uh, it has to do with desiring the happiness of others as you would want your own happiness and well-being, and that would be loving one's neighbors oneself, I suppose. Um, and it certainly, in that case, it, of course, it does um, include self-respect and um, the recognition that abusive behavior by others is not in their interest and would cause suffering for them. So I wanted to uh, put that into the conversation, see what you had to say about it. Well, thank you, Dorothy. That's a very interesting thing. I mean, it's not just Christianity. It's most world religions. The Bhagavad Gita has this lovely thing about an 
all-embracing love for all that lives, right? That, that, that's what you should have, an all-embracing love for all that lives. But I want to ask you about that, uh, Lynn. I mean, so we were talking about evol- uh, evolution and a human capacity for altruism. But, you know, that only extends so far because the same stuff that suggests we care altruistically about those within our group says we're very, very uncaring to those outside of our group. On the other hand, we have this religious kind of ideal of love and all-embracing love for all that lives. How do you square those two things? Can you square those two things? Yeah, I think that it's important when we think about the substrate of what, what we are living in. We're, we're, we're biological beings, but we also have, we are living in a culture and a society, and those cultural and social and societal influences also do, also are important for us. So if we live in a culture that emphasizes the importance of caring for others, either through religious features or other cultural factors, that will encourage this kind of love, I think, for, for others in our uh, environment. So we're not only stuck at the end of our biological evolution, but we're living and evolving in the context of a, of a culture and a variety of cultures in the world. Well, you know, I, I still think there's a tension here because, you know, it's, it's fine that uh, uh, people have this uh, uh, Buddhist uh, love of everything and every action they take uh, shows a love of being and uh, so forth and so on. But if you're the child of some uh, minister that's really good at that, but but there's nothing special about the way he treats you. You're just one more, you know, like the amoeba or the ant or the neighbor down the street. You're just one more instantiation of his all-encompassing love. I would think that would be pretty frustrating, and you wouldn't really want to be married to someone who just uh, whose love for you was just an instance of this incredible, all-encompassing love. So, love's a complicated topic, as uh, as yeah. our friend Greg Slater, who feels a little unloved because we haven't quoted him yet today. Uh, it's really hard to define all the terms we need in this case. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying there. When, when I was trying to look at the qualities that are essential for compassionate love, one of them was this response of the heart. And I think none of us wants to be loved in a kind of a cold, disconnected way. You know, like, okay, I'm loving you because I love everybody and you're part of everybody. And people want to be loved, you know, valued, their own being valued and somehow you having some intrinsic care for that. So I think that's an important quality. Lynn, that's the interesting thing. Again, back to Kierkegaard, who <laughs> is kind of profound on these things. He says that the rise of Christianity pulled a trick on love. Before Christianity, he's thinking of Europe, I guess, not India. And, but before Christianity in Europe, love was always partial. Your friends, you love, you had some friends, not others. Right, you had a you had a spouse and not you you know you loved your country but not others. Love was always partial, and no nobody in the West, he seems to say, gave himself the command, "Love thy neighbor as thyself." Until Christianity came along, and Christianity transformed love. I mean, maybe John's saying maybe that was a mistake. I mean, Christianity misses something because where is the room in that tradition for a focused particular love? So now you're 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 going to make me an enemy of Christianity. No, I'm just I'm just I'm just playing off what you said. <laughs> what you're right, what, what you had to say with what Kierkegaard has to say about the trick yeah. Christianity pulled on love by universalizing it. 
there's always a balance between this kind of love. You're trying to be universally loving, but we we're stuck in this world loving individuals and and just kind of what what is the the comment about I I love mankind. It's my neighbor. I, I can't stand. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I think it's it, we're, we're the the hard the hard thing is is I think in many ways is loving the individual that we're faced with and and really kind of giving of ourselves uh, for their good. And uh, even in, in a Christian setting, that too is important in that context. So let me ask you one last question. But I want to tell me your last view, if you can, about the war between self, selflessness and self-interest. I mean, if I look at the history of human affairs, it seems to me that self-interest mostly wins and selflessness. It has shining moments of stunning victories, but mostly it <laughs> loses. Do you think that's right or am I too cynical? Well, I think if we're looking, you know, I think it's easy to get discouraged on that front. But one of the things that cheers me up is I see little glimmers of selfless caring in the world around me in lots of little ways in in everyday life. And uh, there, there are, of course, the big examples of self-sacrifice that happen that we all hear about. But the things that really can touch us is, you know, um, somebody just, uh, you know, smiling at you in the grocery store and letting you cut in line uh, or, you know, hel- uh, helping out somebody that they don't like, you know, or um, really st- uh, kind of keeping caring for children in a very, very difficult challenge situation where they really are totally exhausted. And I think when we see these little, uh, I don't I don't know, these smaller, less spectacular elements of uh, self-giving love that are around us in the world. It's, it's rather remarkable, and I find it encouraging. That, that's a quite uplifting note. So I'm going to look closer for uh, small victories for selfless love in, in day-to-day life. But on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining us, Lynn. It's been a, it's been a really uh, interesting conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. Our guest has been Lynn Underwood. She's a member of the graduate faculty at Cleveland State University. She's co-editor of The Science of Compassionate Love, Theory, Research, and Application. So, John, uh, have you lost yourself in love today? What, what are you thinking? Oh, well, you know, my love for you is, is, uh, is, is unconditional. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, uh, even if you quote the Bible and mention God and talk about Kierkegaard, uh, I mean, the furthest I got with Kierkegaard is I tried to learn how to spell his name once. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's not as hard as Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. Why do these guys always that that are so deep always have difficult to spell names? But anyway, uh, love is an endlessly fascinating topic. We all want to be loved, uh, and I don't think we want to just be loved unconditionally. But when we violated conditions, it comes in handy to have a little <laughs> unconditional love directed our way. That's my final thought. Well, no, no, that's true. You know, but that's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, we uh, we want to be loved for who and what we are, but we want to be forgiven. That and forgiveness comes out of something like unconditional love. So how do you how do you how do you how do you marry both the urge to you know be loved for who I am, to be worthy of this love, and the urge, you know, the constant need to for, be forgiven. And and you know what exactly uh, was going on in the Garden of Eden when uh, when God expelled Adam? Was was did he love him and he was doing this for his own good or what? I mean, since you're from Notre Dame and you're so full of uh, all this uh, literary stuff today, why don't you explain that? to well, me? Well, fortunately, <laughs> I don't have time. But the conversation <laughs> does continue on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is "Cogito ergo blogo." I think, therefore, I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very very active at ever-growing Facebook page.
And don't forget this, because there's even more. You can sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now we're going to find out what conditions philosophers have put on love through the ages, from Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, Socrates' wife, Xanthippe, whom he married when he was 50, was generally regarded as a shrew. When asked why he married her, Socrates said, if you can put up with her, he can put up with anybody. Does this begrudging tolerance fit in with the classical Greek categories of love, eros, physical desire, agape, love of God, and philia, friendship? I know that eros got medieval philosopher Peter Abelard in a lot of trouble when he fell in love with young Heloise, an affair that led, among other things, to him being castrated by her family. The 17th century hyper-rationalist Spinoza wrote, quote, As far as sensual pleasure is concerned, the mind gets so caught up in it that it is quite prevented from thinking of anything else. But after the enjoyment of sensual pleasure is past, the greatest sadness follows, unquote. On the filial side of the coin, John Stuart Mill married quite late in life in what was possibly a sex-free relationship. Nevertheless, he worshipped Harriet Taylor, and it was through her influence, most likely, that he wrote On the Subjection of Women, one of the first philosophical tracts to argue that women were the equal of men. Saren Kierkegaard wrestled with agape and eros all of his life, uh, mentally anyway. As a young man, he pursued a girl named Regine Olson for three years, then broke off the engagement, breaking her heart and launching his own career as a thinker. Love, some say, had a drastic effect on Nietzsche's philosophy. A lifelong bachelor, he made at least two marriage proposals and was shut down both times. The collapse of the latter relationship, if such it can be called, with a woman named Lou Salome, led to depression, a breakdown, and also Sprach's Zarathustra, which outlines how a man can become a superman by destroying old ideals and living according to his will to power. Connection? Well, you and Freud work it out. Political philosopher Hannah Arendt, a German Jew who coined the phrase banality of evil about Nazis, had an affair with philosopher Martin Heidegger, a Nazi sympathizer and later an actual Nazi, who was 17 years her senior and married with two children. They remained friends for all of his life. More successfully, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir were lovers and friends, though not exclusive to each other, for all their lives. Postmodern icon Michel Foucault often wrote about the erotic, quote, If repression has indeed been the fundamental link between power, knowledge, and sexuality since the classical age, it stands to reason that we will not be able to free ourselves from it except at a considerable cost, unquote. He died of AIDS. The rocky road of love and philosophy has some success stories, most notably Will and Ariel Durant, philosophy popularizers and authors of the Pulitzer-winning The Story of Civilization. They once made a recording together in which she said, quote, I have so many years of happy memories, and so much of it I believe I have to thank you for, Will. Not only all the attractions of a husband and a lover, but the deep companionship that has developed between us so that we almost have one breath, one life, one interest, unquote. Sounds like they could have taught Socrates a thing or two about love. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 62nd Philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2012. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. The director of research is Laura McGuire. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. I never want to marry. I just want to get divorced. <laughs>